Right, ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen and ladies, welcome back to another cracker episode of Friday Night Live. It's your host here, Sean Floyd. I'm the managing director of JR Prosperity Partners, as always. And now I can't wait to get cracking right back into another beautiful episode for all you faithful listeners out there. So um, if you're watching this on, on YouTube, by the way, which we've started putting some content out on, please give us a support. Drop us some questions. Shout us out with a, with a subscribe or give us a like. We'd really, really appreciate it. I know a lot of you will be listening to this on Apple Podcasts as well or Spotify, wherever you're hearing it. But show us some love on the other platforms as well. Now, what we've got set up for today, I know there's some very exciting things coming up in the future. What I would love for you to do is stay tuned for the next couple of episodes because we will be bringing in someone as a very, very special guest, ex-RBA economist who's going to be helping us with some insanely nuanced property trends that we've got to cover. So stay tuned for future episodes. Good things coming up in the future while we reinvent Friday Night Live. But for tonight, producer Ryan and I have come up with another consolidated list of commonly asked FAQs that were sent in to us that we are more than happy to address. So without further ado, let's get cracking right into them. Um, Number one, let's get into it. Can you turn an existing property into an SMSF? What a brilliant, beautiful question. Now, what's interesting about this question is, in reality, can we do it? The answer is yes, we can. But what I I get everyone to seek is their own legal and independent accounting advice on what are the implications of doing so. So typically, if you're changing the structure of a property that is pre-settlement in some states, there are ways, like in Victoria, where you've secured a property, you want to convert that apartment, let's say, hypothetically, into an SMSF purchase, you're actually able to do something quite creative called nominating it to your SMSF without having the double duty implication or paying stamp duty twice. Typically, if a property's existing investment that's already rented out in the marketplace, there more than likely will be double costs or stamp duty implications required to book that property or book that asset into your SMSF. Now, I'll leave that for you guys to decide with your accountants, but like I said, in some situations, a couple of creative strategies can be used to make sure that um, something like this can be done with minimal cost damage. Now, next question, is it worth getting a depreciation report on older investment properties? I love this question because I bought a property that was actually built in like, um, I think the late 80s as well. I own a cottage which is um, significantly older. I have not bothered getting a depreciation report on that property. Where I think the fine line gets drawn is, let's understand a little bit about depreciation. Depreciation, which can be done over a 40-year period, yes, that's right, a 40-year period, most of that curve is going to be in the first five years anyway because it is operating on a sliding scale. I'd leave this up to you to decide whether you really want a depreciation report on older investment properties to maybe look at as a tax mitigation or a tax minimization approach because sometimes what you realize is if the property is way too cash flow positive and if it's significantly older, is getting that depreciation report going to help us if we're positive cash flow? The answer is no, not really. If we're paying a little bit of tax on that property income and we want to minimize it, then getting a depreciation report could be a good thing if that property is within that 1 to 10, 1 to 15 year mark. Keep in mind, if you own a property that you have purchased that you are not the first owner of, you can't claim any more things like fixtures and fittings unless you have 
paid for those things and put them into the property. So keep that in mind. There's a massive, massive difference between claiming property deductions, being a new property owner or the first property owner versus being someone who's secondhand or thirdhand, fourthhand, whatever it is, right? But great question, producer Ryan. I really love that one. Um, here's another question that commonly gets asked to us, I think on a, on a weekly basis. What are the benefits of investing in residential property versus commercial property? Now, the list goes on and on. There are, there are many pros and cons if you're going to, you know, bat the two against each other. But let's look at it from a practical sense. Commercial property typically poses a barrier to entry with deposit requirements. And also, there's not just lenders that willy-nilly give it out. So you've got to really know the lenders you're working out with. And you've got to minimum have typically a 30 35% deposit if you want to be safe. Now, the risks when it comes to commercial property is... The vacancy rates and tenancy rates are not as simple as residential property. It's not as easy to get a business to sign a three, five year lease because these days, what if businesses want to work from home? What if they can relocate? What if they're competing? So really understanding the market you're with and working with a good commercial broker will help your chances of success. The real reason why a lot of families start their investing journey in residential property is because it is safe as houses if it's done well. And when I say if it's safe as houses, you're typically getting a lot better of a lending ratio from the banks. You're able to put down a lot less money because banks know it's a safer investment. Vacancy rates are typically lower if you do your homework well. Um, just trying to think off the cuff here as well, what else is super cool about residential property? Excellent tax deductions. Um, you're also looking at a situation where the capital growth is not in direct equivalent ratio to the rent that you are getting from your tenant. So there will be properties that you can buy in the residential sense where the rent might have only gone up by 50 bucks a week in the last three years, but the value has increased by 300, 400, $500,000 because of the capital growth in that area. It's very easy to take equity out of residential properties and recycle them into doing future investments, right? I hope that makes sense. With commercial properties, a lot of their value is tied to the amounts that you are earning from the rent via that tenant. So a little bit of food for thought over there. If I had to pick a winner long-term, if you're not a multi-gazillionaire, I would pick something like residential investment to be building your wealth the safe and slow way. Um, let's, look at, let's look at the next one. So um, this one's a very interesting question. How much does a suburb's high vacancy rate affect the rental performance of my investment property? Hmm. Well... Um, let's look at it instead of a high vacancy rate, let's look at the question as if it's just about vacancy rates in general. Typically, as a rule of thumb, what we would recommend is a vacancy rate below 2% is a good starting point where there's enough properties on the market for a bit of healthy competition. We know that it's not, you know, vacancy rates of 5% and above, and we know you will secure a tenant within that three, four week mark, which is fairly, fairly standard, right? Believe it or not, there are some markets today that are under such high pressure that you can secure Tenants in markets where vacancy rates are sitting at less than one and a half percent, less than one percent, less than 0.85 percent in some markets as well, which is essentially getting tenants in like a week or two weeks, uh, sometimes four to five days as well. That's how high the demand is. Now, what, what the real effect of having high vacancy rates are is the ability to have a property consistently rented out throughout the whole year. So something that magazines like doing a lot which I don't enjoy is hot spotting or the hot spotting approach, which is talking about here's the suburbs with the highest rental yield. So you see something typically that has a 12, 15% rental yield as a suburb, and then you might be thinking, hang on a minute, that's the best return on my cash. 
But what happens between the lines is those suburbs with insanely high vac rental yields can also be compounded with extremely high vacancy rates, which is why when you eventually secure a tenant there, it's not really a pro that the, that the rental yields high is because you're still sacrificing three months or two months in the year with completely zero rent. So make sure you factor that into your calculations before conducting anything and just acting on vacancy rates only or just acting on rental yields only, right? But keep it in mind, good question. Uh, is it cheaper? Next question, so is it cheaper to buy an investment property on my own or should I seek assistance from property investment professionals? What a phenomenal question. If you know exactly what you're doing, get it done. Um, what is the benefit of using investment property professionals like a buyer's agency or a property integrated group? The real benefit is helping you avoid pitfalls that you didn't know existed. Weird contractual agreements, weird non-nomination clauses, um, weird delay clauses and so forth and so on. Working with professionals and also working with a good solicitor during your exchange process can actually help you avoid costly mistakes. The other thing that professionals can bring to the table is help you dispel the myths that the common real estate industry always tell us. I can tell you two off the top of my head right now that'll be of significant value to you. Myth number one is the three favorite words a lot of people love throwing around in real estate. Producer Ryan, would you like to take a guess uh, what those three magic words are? Location, location. He's got it on the money. I think uh, we need to give a, uh, a coffee voucher to producer Ryan, which he'll gift himself for being so switched on, right? <laughs> he'll give himself two. There we go. Um, that, those three magic words, ladies and gentlemen, are location, location, location. Now, if you've been you know, uh, fortunate enough to see some of our live events or some of our, our webinars that we've done recently, we've actually dispelled the myth of location being the only factor for capital growth. It is really a myth because these days people in Australia are buying their houses mainly based on circles of influence and circles of affluence. So location is not the only all, 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 you know, end all and be all of property investing. Now, when we're looking at, um, uh, you, you know, what else is, is another myth that, that we can dispel as property investment professionals is, is it just the land size that matters? Now, if you have $50,000 spare today and you can afford to buy 50 hectares in the middle of nowhere, there's a reason why those 50 hectares are priced at $50,000. There's a reason why land in, inside a, a growth suburb of Sydney is priced at $800,000. It's because land is sold based on its value and usability, not based on its size. Hope that makes sense, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so let's, let's go into our next question, which is I think question seven for the day. Should I rent out my property or Airbnb it? Now, Airbnb did take off as a massive cult following, I think a couple of years ago where everyone really wanted to have, you know, one of these sort of assets in their portfolio. Let's look at it practically. Sure, the management costs are much higher. The day-to-day -day rentals might be higher as well. Um, vacancies will be a lot higher as well because Airbnb has run into an issue of saturation in the past couple of years. Airbnb has also copped a lot of flack for increasing their charges and costing people a lot of money where hotels in some places are actually going back to being preferred options because they're making you do a lot of work when you stay at an Airbnb, right? They're making you do uh, the work which typically you get at four stars and five star hotels for almost a similar prices. Now, Airbnbs, should I be doing it or should I not be doing it? 
Let's look at it location-wise. If you're in a location which will attract Airbnb sort of um, you know, ongoing business, then sure, weigh up your maths, do some competitor analysis in the area, and see that based on the cold seasons and hot seasons, whether the cold seasons vacancies will be, you know, will be a storm that you can weather despite having a super buoyant hot season, right? So because those tend to be cyclical in terms of their booking natures, long weekends, family holidays, school holidays, the best thing about residential property is you are signing leases for six months, 12 months at a time. So what do you prefer, stability, or do you prefer a little bit of volatility, but the option of having a higher upside? I'll let you be the judge of that. Again, it really boils down to your investment strategy. If you don't have an investment strategy, like we spoke about in the previous question, property investment professionals can help you avoid the pitfalls of investing. Get your strategy right. Have a chat with someone and see what we can do to work together long term. We'd be more than happy to help as well. Great. Now, next question. What type of deductions can I claim on my investment property? This is superb. Um, There's a couple of things, right? Let's assume for the purpose of this question, you're doing a brand new investment property where you're the first owner. The main differences between the new ones and the ones that are secondhand and beyond are the fixtures and fittings and depreciation claiming. So if it's new, you can claim fixtures and fittings. If it's not new, you can't typically claim fixtures and fittings unless you purchase them and put them into the property. But you can still claim depreciation if there's any left on it, right? So... For the purpose of this, let's look at a new one. What can you claim? You can claim pretty much the full interest component of your loan. You can claim the depreciation on the structure of the building, the fixtures and fittings, which involve things like your tiles and blinds within the property. You can also claim your complete property management expenses, which is the property manager who's responsible for putting a good tenant in your property, collecting the rent, um, you know, and, and managing the, the asset overall. You can also claim your council rates. You can claim your strata. You can also claim your insurance on the investment property and any maintenance upkeep. So there you go. You have it. There's no, no magic source. You're just claiming the things that we are allowed to. Now, rolling on to the next question. This one I love, Producer Ryan, because this one is a curveball. We have a family house that is divided into quarters through a will. I am the only one who wants to keep my share and the other families want to sell theirs. Should I or should I not buy their shares? Huh, all right, that one's a, a curveball and a half. Now, for, for some reason, when I'd first seen this before we, we filmed this episode, I know this question has just come in, um, my mind naturally went to shares in property. Now, when I'm talking about shares in property, I want to touch on this subject because it's a great subject. A lot of people are being marketed the ability to be exposed to being a property investor by buying shares in properties. And for example, you put down $20,000, you own a 150th share of that asset. And then you get a percentage of the rental return, you get a percentage of the capital growth. In my humble opinion, that is no different to going on your phone in Comsec and just buying a bunch of CBA shares. Because the whole purpose of residential property investing's success is that you utilize leverage to be buying the asset. That's where you get better than market returns. That's what you're doing. How many people these days buy their houses in cash? Very few. If you're buying your house in cash, you know, you're not utilizing the leverage of what you could have done. So buying one house in cash maybe will allow us to buy three houses if we spread that out the right way. And sure, there is lending risk involved, but it can be mitigated if you do your homework correctly, right? 
Now, looking at this question, if we have a family house divided through a will, I'm the only one that wants to keep my share. Should I, should I not buy their shares? It depends on the property. What do you want to do with the property? Is the property in good condition? Is the property something that you think will grow long term? If you want the house and you can buy this house and you can buy their shares, then what's stopping you? Go ahead and control it. Just make sure you speak to your solicitors to make sure no one can come creeping back through the back door and say, hey, I need that quarter share for myself back all over again and I need a clause that allows me to be rebuying it myself. Typically, family-based properties and family-based property disputes can get quite ugly. That's why a lot of solicitors and a lot of accountants recommend people to not be buying properties with brothers as investments, not be buying properties with family, friends. Keep things separate. That way it's really nice that you have your own entry plan and you have, more importantly, your own exit plan as well, right? So a good bit of food for thought over there. Um, another really exciting question before we wrap up um, our second last one for tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is I am a newly graduate Newly graduate. Hmm. I'm a newly graduate something. So the question the person sent in misses what they're a newly graduate about. I'm not going to get into the, um, the, the idea of what they do, but I'm assuming I'm a newly graduated professional with a 100K sitting in the bank. No debts, no other expenses, and I have a stable job. I want to start investing with my money in the bank. Any property recommendations that would yield me a high income. Now, Ladies and gentlemen, because this question is specifically around high income, can I get it done? The answer is absolutely you can. A hundred grand, if leveraged correctly in today's economy, if you are earning, I'm guessing the stable job's got a got an income of about 120, 130k per year. If it's not, resend the question. I'm happy to address it specifically to, to the situation. But assuming broadly that the income's 120 to 140000 dollars can we get a high income property? The answer is yes, you can get quite high income properties. In fact, you can actually get what's called in today's marketplace, even a hybrid allocation. A hybrid allocation is a property that has phenomenal growth prospects, but it comes with a traditionally higher rental yield than the average capital city's rental yield. So you can buy a house with 100 grand of savings that is worth in the marketplace $600,000. That's right, $600,000. And something that's giving you a gross rent of 5%, 5.2% or higher. Now, during COVID, when people were buying properties left, right and center willy-nilly, we realized that you could still get away with getting decent cash flow, even if the gross rental yield was 3.5%. Today, based on the current interest rate environment, people are opting for high income properties. So can you do a dual occupancy income and get a yield of 7%? Sure. Can it be done with a 100K budget? Maybe you might need to have a 140 or 150k budget to swing an asset type like that. But without taking too much risk, you can actually get a good 5% and above yield on a growth style property, even with 100 grand money in the bank. So phenomenal question. I'm more than happy to reach out and do a, a tailored strategy on that one. I've helped countless people in similar situations get phenomenal results in a two, three, four year period with almost the exact same scenario. So good one, producer Ryan. I really like that. Um, and yeah, for, for our lucky last for today, because we wanted to keep today short, sharp, and to the point, um, before we come out with a really, really beautiful, nuanced topic next time around, um, we're just shuffling some dates around with Head of Research to figure out whether they'll be with us for next week's Friday Night Live or the week after. 
But if, if you haven't already put it in your calendar, just put it, put a beacon out to remember to watch that episode where we bring in some really crazy property trends that you didn't know existed. I really want to bring that value to the marketplace pronto. So, Sean, where do you think the interest rates rest by the end of the year 2024? In my opinion, we've been fairly accurate with what we thought was going to happen in the past. Looking forward into the future... My opinion is that I think they will be slightly lower than where they are today, which is where we are in tail end of 2023, where they are quite high. So sometimes 7% for doing investment properties, mid sixes, low sixes, you get the idea. I think they'll be a touch lower than where we are right now. And if they're not, don't freak out. Where we are right now is actually a super stable place. And long term, if property investments had 7% interest rates, that is not a problem. You are getting taxes back on what you're investing in. So... Um, If you're a homeowner that's planning on buying a big dream home and paying a giant mortgage, not so much. We have officially, as of mid-2023 and beyond, entered the age of the investor. So stay tuned. And apart from that, I wish you a beautiful weekend ahead. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up with all of you as always. Um, Have a beautiful rest of your Friday, Arvo, and I'll see you next time.